Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap show brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. What are you up to? Well, uh, remember how I talked to you about how I was going to that instructional um, mushroom farming? Culinary mushrooms, right? Culinary mushrooms. Only real clear. <laughs> <laughs> Culinary mushrooms. So uh, I'm just about to set up my oyster mushroom farm at my house. Okay. Yep. What's it like? Uh, so you grow it weirdly in used-up coffee grounds. Like compost? No, you just take them like right out of your coffee maker and dump them in like a juice carton and uh, yeah, grow, uh, grow some uh, shiitakes out of that shit. I can wonder what that smells like. We are about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it smells like coffee. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> uh, you listen to anything good lately? <laughs> yeah, I have. Maybe a song we can use for this episode is some uh, early Nirvana. This is episode 10. It's the finale for the first season. It's a really great episode. It opens up with um, Michael Hansen, uh, Chris's shitty boyfriend, if you remember him. Uh, he's meeting Chris at a, at a patio. Yes, and so um, he's got her there under false pretenses. Yeah, he's lied again. Actually, we get two important Michael Hansen lies off the top, because the first is that his name is, uh, is actually Lenny. <laughs> Does that remind you of anybody? <laughs> well, I feel like he, he besmirches this name. Like, that's <laughs> Detective Lenny Briscoe is the one true Lenny. From Law and Order. From Law and Order. From your Law and Order podcast. <laughs> so if you aren't already listening to the 27th Precinct, uh, now is a really good time to subscribe. <laughs> uh, the other thing he's told Krista um, that's not true is that he's dying. And that's how he was able to make Chris uh, meet him to begin with. Yes, and I think at this point she's probably pretty pissed that he isn't. Well, she's pissed off at him because um, she found out because of Elliot's hack, Elliot's hacking Michael, that he's kind of been up to no good. He's cheating on her. He has a fake name that he's told her. He's he's basically just a big shithead, and now she's aware of that. Yes, and so Michael says to her or Lenny, whatever we want to call him now, <laughs> um, says that he thinks he's probably hacked her too. That this probably isn't limited. And he kind of calls on her to disclose some of what Elliot said in his confidential therapy sessions. Which she declines. But it is also interesting or worth noting that he has hacked her, so I guess he's right about that. <laughs> he is right about that. Um, part of it is I like, because Krista, I think, has a hard time standing up for herself, that character. Yeah. So he really asks for her sympathy, and she really doesn't show him any. So she does a good job of kind of protecting her own interests and... and um, and ethical responsibilities as a therapist here. Yeah, I think she does a good job there. She just says, no to Michael. Michael goes home. And um, once he's kind of just like grabbing a snack, watching TV, he notices that this really, really big hack is taking place between the previous episode and this episode. So we, we kind of didn't really get to see the hack itself, but now we're starting to see the fallout of it. So in looking at some of the media coverage of the fallout of the hack, we see this has had some pretty serious repercussions. So there are whole government economies that are collapsing. Um, and we cut to Elliot. He's waking up in the parking lot? Yeah, and the attendant tells him that the car has been there for two days. I think it's important to remember, Elliot doesn't have a car. Elliot takes the subway. So it's pretty disturbing when we realize it's Tyrell Wellick's Escalade. Right, because Tyrell was the last person he was with in the previous episode. Now, of course, he's got a gap in his memory. And so at this point, we see he's got a serious mistrust in himself and his own perceptions. But he also addresses 
us in the audience. And he says, you know, I don't even trust you at this point. Now, Elliot is really trying to figure out what's happened over the last few days. And he gets an idea to go um, revisit the F Society arcade. When he gets there, he finds that all of the other members of F Society are kind of already in wipe down mode. They're kind of uh, taking drills to their drives like we've seen Elliot do before. Because it seems like this hack actually has went through. Yeah, and so he shows up. Everybody's mad at him. Romero's pretty pissed that he wasn't there. And Darlene is a weird combination of um, scared and mad. Well, I guess um, from their perspective, Elliot just disappeared for a few days, kicked off this hack, and then came back all of a sudden because they, they didn't really cooperate in the hack at all. No, and so they had planned to do this a bit differently, but Elliot does it without them. So there's some resentment, and it's kind of a weird moment for them. Right, because this is also... Um, well, the scene is kind of for Elliot. This is where Elliot is starting to understand the, the scope of the hack. Because he kind of goes on the computer, reads a bunch of articles, and he finds out that the economy is kind of experiencing a bunch of turmoil. People are protesting all over the city, and people are actually asking to join F Society. Which is pretty incredible. So it's created, so in a way, even though they're kind of upset, they're also happy at this moment. Because a couple of important things have happened. So the coordinated attack with China, uh, the Dark Army has pulled through. So everything's gone up. Flawlessly, really. Um, Elliot is trying to piece together, of course, those like three-day gap in his memory. Um, at this point, he needs to see Mr. Robot, and he can't. He can't find him anywhere. Now, interspersed, there's a lot of there's a lengthy Elliot storyline in this episode, so we're going to try to keep that mostly uh, continuous. But there are a couple of cutaway scenes that aren't really linked to that story that we want to include. And so one of those, um, we see Gideon briefly at Allsafe. And he's with, is it the chief financial officer? I think so. That's a character we haven't seen before, but that seems to be what they're doing. And that we never see again, I don't <laughs> think. But basically, they're trying to cost down how long they can stay open. Um, and I think Gideon's a character we really like. And so it's sad to see him go through. Um, he's really realizing that everything he's worked for might be be finished. Yeah, he really got a bad deal here. He did. The only silver lining that the um, the CFO can find is that because of the hack, actually all of Allsafe's debt might be erased too. Yeah, I guess that's a positive consequence. So next we see Elliot, and he's at E Corp trying to track down uh, Tyrell, who was the last person he saw before he passed out for three days. Um, but when he gets there, he finds out that um, the place has kind of been chaos. Elliot, I think, is kind of surprised, you know, when he imagined the revolution. He didn't think it was just going to be a bunch of people in suits running around trying <laughs> to figure out what to do. I thought that was a great way to put it. In the middle of all this mess, um, we see the fourth F Society video. Um, and I look forward to these. They are pretty great. What do they say in this one? So, um, here, they're basically giving an update to people. So, they say that they delivered on their promise, um, which they have. And they also say that any attempt to undo it will be futile. So uh, one of the lines that really resonates here is they say, your debt has been forgiven by us, your friends of society. <laughs> and this again goes back to, we talked about how in this series, no one is a straightforward hero or villain. It's always complicated. That's something I really like about this series. So they've thrown the whole world into chaos, um, but they're positioning themselves to the public as, you know, we are friends of the public and friends of the people. So I think the wording they choose is important there. Um, and at the end of the video, they ask people to repeat back with them, we are F Society, we are finally free, we are finally awake. 
So speaking of F Society, now we're back with um, Darlene and company. They're out at a, a crematorium to kind of wipe down after this hack. Yeah, so the final steps of them erasing their tracks, they actually take all of the dismantled drives, everything they have. It's an animal crematorium. Right. I guess we should mention. And so it's funny because they kind of give the guy working there, who they probably bribed to do this for them, they give him shit for the job he does. <laughs> and then they actually, they free all of the dogs that are waiting to be euthanized. I love that shot. It's a really, it, like for a show that doesn't have a lot of moments of levity, like watching all of them, like with all these dogs running around, like it's a joyful moment. And it's kind of nice, especially before we get into the rest of the storyline where everything becomes a lot more complicated than they thought it was going to be in the aftermath. The next thing uh, we see, Elliot is continuing his quest to find Tyrell, and so he decides he's going to go to his house. And he runs into Joanna. Right, Joanna is coming home with the baby, and right as the both of them get to the steps, there's actually um, there's an altercation where some people on the street are beating up a man wearing an F-Society mask. <laughs> wow, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it happens like right beside them. It's really kind of <laughs> alarming. This whole scene is a little bit, like every scene with Joanna, is a little bit alarming. Yeah, and they have some really tense music playing in this one, too. Um, Elliot tries to lie. So he says, I love this. He says his name is Ollie. <laughs> That's, that's a good choice. <laughs> well, I can't think of anyone that I hate more in this series than Ollie for whatever reason, so I like that that's who he pins this on. But he says that they work together um, and that he's looking for him. So Joanna here, I think at first she's alarmed that he's there, so she changes her story partway through the conversation. Because she kind of thinks that maybe there's something that she can gain from uh, Elliot, or Ollie as she thinks. I think that's her default way of thinking, like she always thinks there's something she can possibly gain, but at first she says that her husband has just called her and he's going to be home very soon, maybe trying to interrupt what she perceives as a threat of a strange man showing up at her house, but then I think she gets a sense he is no threat, and so finally she says, did he seem strange when you last saw him, because he was acting very strangely when I saw him last three days ago. So just as long as Elliot disappeared, Tyrell did as well. Yes, and so and Tyrell has disappeared from his family's life. It's not just that he's not showing up at E Corp. So now we're going to take a minute and just kind of um, see through Angela's storyline for this episode. Uh, we see that she took that job that she was offered by Terry Colby at E Corp. Uh, she's kind of kind of nervous though, and you can tell that she still is kind of learning the ropes there. Um, I think that her title is um, assistant, uh, assistant to James Pluff. She's working in PR, basically. Yeah, so she's got a, not a public-facing role, but she seems to be doing media support. And she's there with him. Um, he's being interviewed on live television about the fallout and everything that's happening at E-Corp related to the hack. Can I ask you, I have a question about Angela. So Angela, um, we're seeing a dramatic shift in her character. So I noticed first... Like, her hair is curly all the way along, and now it's straight. And in the earlier episodes, she wears light colors, and now it's, like, mostly a black wardrobe. Is there some symbolism in, like, hacker culture about, like, light and dark? Well, the symbolism, I think, is with uh, black and white. Because um, it's kind of a reference to Western movies back in the day, where the protagonist would have a white hat and the antagonist would have a black hat. 
So they say that a hacker who um, kind of just hacks because they want to see the world burn is called uh, a black hat hacker, and a white hat hacker is somebody who hacks um, like for ethical reasons. So I think that one way you could interpret that is kind of showing that Angela is kind of turning toward the dark side. And um, I, I do like how they kind of integrate that into the, the costumes for this show. It reminds me a lot of Breaking Bad, because they did something like that, too. Yeah, and I mean, and this is a well-used analogy, but I think it's particularly interesting that it has that significance in this world, in reality as well. Because, and we're going to see kind of the culmination very shortly of her shift over to a very different kind of Angela than we knew in, initially. Into a very, very dark place. <laughs> So um, she's here to help with this um, live interview that James Pliff is doing uh, to, uh, to kind of unpack the aftermath of this hack. And so we learn that um, $4 billion of wealth have been lost in just this single day. Pretty big. Pretty big. Um, he's asked, it's interesting, the reporter asks if the public should be concerned. And he does something we don't expect him to do. Well, I think at first he kind of tries to stay in control of the situation. He kind of tries to reassure everybody that everything's okay, that the government um, is in control, and that there isn't really anything that the public needs to be afraid of. But you're right that there is a moment where uh, his tone kind of changes. Well, because when they say, should the public be worried, he says, that's a good question. <laughs> and you don't really expect him to give it any purchase. Yeah. Um, but he also says, my life is over, my pension, my savings, my everything is gone. Yeah, because all of that $4 billion, his money was in there. Right, and so then, Something very shocking happens. Yeah, it's actually so shocking that um, when this show was, when this episode was first intended to air, it happened ar around the time where um, two television reporters were shot in a live broadcast. So they ended up delaying this episode out of respect because of how uh, intensely graphic this one scene was. Oh, I didn't know that about the original airing. Yeah. <laughs> um, because what he does next is he pulls a gun out of his briefcase and he shoots himself in the head. On live television on live television with all of these people just standing around him totally stunned and Angela is among them. Angela a few steps away from him with his blood all over his shoes, all over her shoes. Um, I think that this scene, um, it references a thing that happened in real life with um, a senator or governor or something like that named um, Bud Dyer or Dwyer. Have you ever heard of him? I haven't. Um, basically, they were accused of um, some really big crime like bribery or something like that. And um, they, they basically did what James Pliff did and shot himself uh, on television wow. instead of uh, go to court for it. So I think that this is kind of intended to be a reference to that. It is. And certainly it's a very powerful scene. And I mean, it makes you wonder. Angela's been nervous about taking this job at E Corp. She's suddenly found herself in this horrific circumstance. I'm really curious about what happens next to her in this episode. Man, I feel like I've had some bad first weeks on the job. But it was really not, not getting any luck here. She has not had a lot of luck. Like, she's not what I would characterize as a lucky character. But she's trying to make her own luck. And I think that's part of what makes her so sinister, especially as we get into season two. So Angela's got uh, some real flat affect going on in this episode. <laughs> because the next scene we see her in, she's having a conversation with Price. And it's the most emotionless scene probably of the series, after this horrific uh, death by suicide. Right, it's just in like the next room. They don't really seem to mind it that much, though. They don't. Um, they don't. They seem really unaffected by it. Um, Price, this is when he clicks that she's Terry Colby's reference. Um, 
so he's looking for, and I don't know, maybe it's the way that she handled it, but he tells her that later she should attend a press conference because it would be a good learning opportunity for her. Do you think that's really what his motive is? I'm unclear, I admit, through the next several episodes about his motivations in interacting with her at all. Mm -hmm. um, because I think she's a pawn here, but I don't know in what way. It's something that they started to flesh out more in season two. Yeah, so we'll talk more about that because I think his motivations are pretty opaque to us at this point. Um, so he tells her to come to this press conference. She says no. Um, and he leaves it. This is the most awkward, awkward moment. And just very, it shows the lack of humanity on his part, I think, because he just looks down at her shoes and there's like, like basically bits of brains and stuff on Yeah, them. it's pretty gross. Um, and he just hands her a wad of cash, which remember, they're all unrestricted. There's a limit to how much cash you can withdraw each day. Oh, wow. I hadn't even considered that. But yeah, they just got like $100 shoes after that. Well, so he hands her this wad of cash and looks down at her feet and says, those won't do. <laughs> I, I guess she agrees with that because she goes shoe shopping immediately after us. And I mean, I know people process things in their own way, but somehow going into a shoe store, remember, she's still wearing the bloody shoes. Which the salesperson comments on. The salesperson does because he's, he puts it together. Right? He says, like, oh, you were with that man. Like, do you work there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it was on TV. I mean, everybody knows about it. Um, and he tells her she should quit. And how does she take that? Well, I think this scene really is like the culmination of Angela's heel turn. And I kind of love how she reacts to this, even though it's, it's brutal. But I think it's great to see it come from Angela. Because um, I think she realizes that by working at E Corp, she, like, her intention, like you were saying, is to kind of change things from the inside. But that also means that she is internalizing a bit of E Corp inside herself, if that makes any sense. I think she would have to for her survival there. Yeah. So I think that what the salesperson is telling her is kind of be careful not to get swept up in that when you're working there. But it kind of seems like she already has. And she's, like, she's kind of already put on that black hat. Because what she tells the salesperson is just that she doesn't care and what she wants is some products right now. So initially, Angela refuses to go to the press conference. But uh, she puts on her new products and she makes her way there. <laughs> I think she's curious about price. She's curious about why he seems so confident. And he, he is entirely confident. He's not rattled at all. Um, because he thinks this is a man-made problem and it will crack under the weight of his power and the power <laughs> of his corporation. Some ego in this guy. Yeah, that's the thing. This guy is all ego. He says that he finds Angela refreshing. <laughs> refreshing? What do you think that means? I think he's always... I can never tell if he's being lecherous with her or not because there are some things, uh, like we'll see something in a couple of episodes where... I'm not sure if that's the intention or if it's just <laughs> he just speaks to her like an object because all people are objects it's to him. Kind of him. a joke with him. The thing about Angela is I think I haven't had a Hamilton joke in an episode or two, but <laughs> this is kind of an Aaron Burr moment for her. So that goes along with the heel turn, if any of you have listened to Hamilton, where Burr spends all of his time trying to get into the room where it happens. And Angela is now adjacent to the room where it happens. <laughs> She's on her way there. So she finds herself there, and then I'm... Can you talk a little bit about what happens when it actually starts? Oh, well, I think... Um, it, it, were you saying it's not like any press conference you've ever been to? I think that um, it, it definitely kind of is reflected in the, the visuals of the scene, 
where we kind of see um, Price overlooking everybody from the balcony. Uh, it's shot from behind him, so you kind of just see him overlooking this big group of people and kind of addressing them like a, like a dictator. Price, I mean, who we don't expect a lot of integrity from anyway, does a truly hypocritical, uh, almost eulogy of uh, Plough, who in private he describes to Angela as weak and a disgrace to his family and talks about his gambling problem and all of these other personal deficits um, and that he's glad he killed himself. Wow. Um, but of course, public facing, you know, he says he was a great man and what a terrible loss. And um, so basically, you know, complete, completely duplicitous from him, which is nothing more than we would be given to expect. After they've wiped and burned all of those hard drives, the last step is to wipe down um, the actual location where the hack had taken place. So one way to do this would have been to kind of grab a bunch of alcohol wipes and meticulously remove all the fingerprints from every keyboard in the area. But what they do is actually a little more clever than that because um, they kind of use plausible deniability by inviting and having a bunch of people come over for a party because there, there's going to be like so many fingerprints, so much DNA all over the place that you won't really know who was involved in the hack and who wasn't. It's funny because they're throwing a party, but the only person who's happy here is Darlene. Everyone else seems, they seem worried and they seem almost, I don't know if they're dissatisfied. I don't know exactly what the feeling is. Well, the impression I get is that they thought that um, the hack was the last piece of the puzzle and now they're starting to find out that it's actually just the beginning. Yes, that's, that's the other Hamilton joke I'll make this, where uh, winning is easy and governing is harder. <laughs> well, that's very relevant, isn't it? You, you must listen to that musical before the next episode. So the question really for F Society is, well, now what? And I think that's going to take them several episodes to answer. One thing that I really like in the, the End of the World Party is that the song playing in the background is I Got Your Money. Yeah, that's a perfect song. <laughs> is that I'd what like, the song's called? I think so. <laughs> I would like the End of the World Party playlist. Maybe listeners can make suggestions about what would go on that. So let's get back to the Elliot storyline is going to close out the episode. And there's still quite a lot to go over in this. So he goes back to Tyrell's car where he kind of came to consciousness. Which is still parks in that uh, parking lot with the graffiti. Yeah, it's still there. So he's back looking for evidence. He's also still trying to provoke Mr. Robot into showing up. Because for the first time, this guy is nowhere to be found. We both watched this episode and managed to miss a kind of critical <laughs> detail. Yeah, so the, the purpose of this scene is that um, Elliot is still trying to chase Dan Tyrell, or, or Mr. Robot for that matter. He um, looks at the recent GPS locations in the car and finds out that Tyrell has kind of um, covered up all of his tracks. But inside the, the roof, he finds some sunglasses, which at first don't really seem like that, that big of a deal, but there actually is a USB key that's hidden inside the sunglasses. So it kind of goes to show you how subtle a show is sometimes, because I think that I've seen this scene at least five times now in the process of recapping the show, and I didn't pick that up until just now. No, we both said to each other, does he find something in the car? What does he find in the car? What's the purpose of this scene? Nothing happens. Nothing happens. <laughs> and so, I mean, like so many other times in this show, something happens that we're not going to understand the significance of for some time. The sunglasses USB key doesn't really come into play yet. What Elliot actually does next is um, goes down to an internet cafe. And um, I think that now he's kind of trying to find Mr. Robot, not as much Tyrell. So he watches the video where... Initially, we think Mr. Robot has pushed him off of the boardwalk. 
But as we can see in the video, Mr. Robot is nowhere to be found. It's actually just Elliot who's falling off the boardwalk by himself. Don't they call it, the video is called something like boardwalk fail? <laughs> it does look pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's just like him flinging himself off of, it's like a pretty good drop. I mean, he ends up in the hospital after that. Elliot decides he's got to take drastic measures here. So to try to force Mr. Robot's hand and get him to show up, he picks up a phone and he decides that he's going to get himself arrested. But Mr. Robots, um, he objects to that. that. That actually does succeed in making him come out. Yeah, so that's an effective move. So Mr. Robot and Elliot actually get into a physical confrontation at this point in the middle of his internet cafe, which must look just as weird as the boardwalk <laughs> video. Yeah, we does. kind of get to see what it looks like to outside observers. In boxing, they say the only sure win is a knockout. And <laughs> I think that's why Mr. Robot provokes a stranger into actually knocking him out. Yeah, wow. Sounds like Elliot's doing a lot of winning here. Well, he makes, it's like a series of bad, like, your mom jokes, too. <laughs> I mean, like, anyone might have punched him at that point. One line that sticks with me from this scene, and I'm not sure what, uh, what the significance will be, but at one point, Mr. Robot, before they're knocked out, says to Elliot, I'm only supposed to be your prophet. You're supposed to be my god. So this, we're coming to the last scene of the episode. Um, this is kind of intense because it's in the middle of Times Square. There's an F-Society march. Uh, there's lots of lights and sounds. And one thing I love about this series, too, is that theme of hiding in plain sight. Because they're just walking through a big group of people, right? Yeah, like having an argument in the middle of the street in front of a big <laughs> group of people. And then it cuts to, so this, is, um, this isn't a flashback, a hallucination of, Elliot's mother and also um, of Elliot himself as a child. I actually thought at first that this whole scene was a flashback, so this was kind of blowing my mind. Well, and I think there's some implication that it is, because Mr. Robot says at some point during this scene that, um, that the whole world is built on a fantasy. That really kind of becomes his uh, shtick, I guess, with being, like, he says a lot that control is an illusion. Well, and I think it's to that character's advantage to undermine the reality that people think that they know, and Elliot in particular. So whether this is, this whole thing is a hallucination, I think that's entirely possible, that it's a projection. Elliot, of course, remember how Elliot never has time to think. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor guy. He just, I think he just wants everything to stop for a minute, and so we see him, he's just screaming that he wants to be alone. And that's when all of the sound and all the motion around them stops. Uh, Mr. Robot, um, well, actually, sorry, this comes from Child Elliot. Child Elliot says that all of them are bound together. So I don't know whose side Child Elliot's on. Yeah. Um, but this is sort of a disturbing moment because Elliot does not know what to do. He gets a direction from Mr. Robot to watch the carnage. The next scene is the last one in the episode. We find that Elliot is now uh, back at his apartment. He's pretty agitated. This has obviously been a pretty difficult day. <laughs> yeah, and he just had a uh, public meltdown. And at the end of all of that, someone knocks on the door, and he goes to open it, and that's when the credits roll. Yeah, we don't really find out who it is. I'm wondering, is it Tyrell, is it Mr. Robot, or is it the feds? Who do you think? I mean, it could be any one of those. Could be Dark Army. Could be. Um, I mean, the, uh, even the rest of F Society is pissed at him at this point. Like, I, I like the openness of this scene, um, and of course, I mean, it's always good to leave people with a question. So that's the question we're left with uh, at the end of season one. 
Thanks a lot for listening to Mr. Rewalk. This episode was recorded in downtown Toronto. If you enjoyed this episode today, we would encourage you to consider contributing to Trans Lifeline. That's a crisis hotline that's by and for the transgender community. You can find them at translifeline.org. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. Bonsoir. Okay, no, wait, we were wrong. We yeah, were wrong. There actually is a post credit scene in this episode. And I didn't know that the first time, so I was uh, really surprised when I found it when I was rewatching this episode. But we see um, a car that's driving along, and so it looks like a very fancy mansion. And guess who gets out of the car? Who's that? It's Beatty Wong. <laughs> I love. So this scene, um, even though I think you could miss it, because obviously we, there's nothing usually in this show after the credits, this scene again is very Beatty <laughs> because he's there to discuss, um, we don't have background on this, the Colton Mines. Yeah, I have no idea what that is. With Price. It appears to be Price's house, or at very least Price's party. Uh, because it's a party, um, they decide not to because there's also too much else to discuss. We, we learn that the Colton mines are in the Congo and that's really all we know about it at this moment. But Price, who apparently has uh, his evil fingers in pies all over the world, uh, maybe that's a gross analogy. I could use something <laughs> e different. Evil fingers. Um, uh, Price, who has, Price is kind of like an evil octopus with tentacles <laughs> everywhere. Uh, so Price says that they know the person responsible for the Colton mines, and they will handle them as they usually do. That sounds ominous. Everything Price handles seems ominous. <laughs> There's a comparison made here um, to Emperor Nero, uh, because of course they're deciding to put all of this aside, enjoy the party, so this is much like him fiddling while Rome burned. <laughs> but then there's another surprise for us. A very familiar standing watch beeps. And so that's when we connect that the character in front of us who is um, presenting as masculine is wearing White Rose's watch. So anyway, I don't know what to make of any of that, but I love this bonus information. I love the surprise scene, and uh, I can't wait to watch season two. Thanks for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This podcast is recorded in downtown Toronto. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider donating to a local homeless shelter. I'm Erin. And I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.